Man, I appreciate you, Michael, for giving me the opportunity to share this story. I wouldn't have thought I would ever thank anyone for giving me the opportunity to share this story. It would only have been under, <laughs> against my will. But I want to I read a, a quote here attributed to Martin Luther. I got some, I got some solid Lutheran pastors in the room. Going to be on our panel later. This is a quote. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may, I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefront besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You tracking with me on that? It's saying to like testify to the gospel at every point except the one, except the one that is so uncomfortable to address because precisely at that moment this thing is is experiencing a pressure and an intensity and a complexity that makes us feel uncomfortable, then we're not really, we, we feel good about what we're doing, but, but there's, a, there's a call to courage. There's a call to courage on this side of the microphone, so to speak, and there's a call to courage on that side of the microphone. There is no journey of following Jesus without courage. Be strong and courageous, God said to Joshua, because I have wonderful things. I have promised to your forefathers and ancestors that I want to bring you into in your lifetime. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to be strong and I need you to be courageous because you will one day inhabit the land, the territory, the reality that I am fully able to lead you into. But a prior generation to Joshua, they came up to the edge of the Jordan. They saw the Jordan River. They saw Jericho beyond it. They saw all the people that lived in the land. They sent some spies to scope it out. And they came back and they're like, yeah, it's, it's amazing, but it's too intimidating. Like, I'm glad to not be in Egypt anymore, but I don't know if I have it in me to trust the Lord further still. I'm glad I'm saved, but I don't know if it, I, I have it in me to face these giants that are inhabiting the land that is rightfully mine in Christ. And God looks at Joshua and Caleb and that whole group and says, let's do it. Let's go. Let's start today. Let's not stop until you possess all that I promised to give you. I'll give you every place you set your foot. The whole land was promised. But God said, I will give you every bit of it that you set your actual foot on. So if you want to go halfway into it, you can have half of it. 
you want to go three quarters of the way into it, you can, you can have three quarters of it. Just trust me. Believe me. I'll give you every place you're willing to go on this intimidating, terrifying, anxiety-ridden journey. You're, you're not doing it wrong if you're terrified. That's why he said, be strong and courageous, for I will be with you. I'll be with you wherever you go. Whatever this road, whatever this journey entails to come to live in and inhabit all the Lord's promise for you, I'll be with you wherever that takes you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. However intimidating the battles around you are or within you, just know you'll never have to face them alone. So keep your eyes on me and be strong and courageous. Let's do this together. So I was on your side of this kind of thing for a while, and at some point in my life, I began to be on this side of it as well, and my story spans both of those sections. So without any further ado, let me begin. I actually want to introduce my wife. My wife's in the back. Her name is Bex, and I'm really glad she's here. She's going to be up with me in, in a little bit on the panel. We have five wonderful children. <sighs> Even I'm surprised to hear that come out of my mouth. We have Mercy and Jude and Promise and Liberty and Victory. And those names come out of our story. Mercy and Jude, which means to give thanks and praise to God, and Promise and Liberty and Victory. So I'm about seven years old and my family's living in China. My parents were a junior high shop teacher and an occupational therapist, they were sitting in church one day, and the speaker said that China, a formerly closed country to the gospel, doesn't want Christians of any sort except Christian English teachers. If they could have all their university English teachers be Christians, they would. And so there's this unique window for, for Christian foreigners to come in and live and work in China. And my parents felt the Lord tap them on the shoulder and with three kids, they said, all right. And a couple years later, we were there. It was in China when I realized that um, I was in a family. I was in the middle of three boys. And the reason why I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this story than just the, just the bits about sexual addiction and pornography is because... Sexual addiction and pornography is a symptom of something else. No one who is well, no one who's well wants to repeatedly engage in behaviors that violate their own values. It's just like drinking from water that's unclean and makes you sick and drains your life in one form or another, and compulsively for years finding yourself engaging in that again. No one who's well does that. So anyone who does do that, I don't think we should condemn or judge. I think we should be merciful and gentle because the very experience, uh, uh, 
that we're talking about is one that is, 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 is traumatic to experience, even if you're, if you're that person. So guilty, yes. Violating scripture, yes. Breaking relationship, yes. Living in shame, yes. And, and, and for that to be you, for that to be me, man, that's, that, it's just, you're just dying on the inside. And so to, to get at how this comes to be, we have to back up and understand that there's usually a larger story surrounding it. So I am eight. That's about third grade. And I have this older brother who is just freakishly brilliant. He's still freakishly brilliant. It never, like, wore off. So think about this. We're homeschooled because we're like the three white kids in a city of 11 million uh, Chinese folks. And so my older brother, I'm, like, in my, like, appropriate grade level homeschool workbook. And my older brother, I don't know, he's, like, practically taking college course courses as an 11-year-old, just finishing whole years, you know, every month. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, I am an idiot, was kind of the takeaway. Like, I don't have what it takes. But I don't know if anyone knows that except me. So I'm going to have to figure out something else in life to kind of prove and fake my way through. Because I know I, if that's normal, then I'm um, insufficient. And so I kind of said, you know what? Here's what I have going for me. I kind of have like, I'm good with people. I'm like, I can be charming and funny and kind and a servant. So to make sure that I have like acceptance and approval in the eyes of other people, I'm going to try to figure out what people want. And I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to be liked. And then this feeling of inferiority, insecurity inside, I'm going to know that I'm, I'm okay. So I, none of that's true. I mean, like, each of us in our own lives are going to realize that we have weaknesses. We have limits to our brain intellect. We have limits on our strength. We have limits on how good we do art. We have limits on all sorts of things. And that that's not something we need to be insecure or, or hide, that God made us human. And to be human is to have limits. And God has no limits. And he meets us in our humanity. He meets us in our weakness. And, and so I believed a lie that I had to hide and change who I was to be accepted. And so a lot of the things that it entailed were kind of innocuous. Like, like Josh, do you want to play jacks or cards? And I'd be like, what do you want to do? And they'd say cards. And I'd say, me too. I just did that for everything. And everyone was always happy. I never got mad at anyone. But there was this one person in my life that I couldn't please. I couldn't impress. I couldn't make them feel good, which is not my problem at all. But in this mode, this is how I operate. And so this person was a couple years older than me. It was actually a girl. She was the oldest kid of another family who was a part of our American team who was living in China. And I would come to later find out that this girl had experienced uh, difficulty and trauma in her life that made sense of some of her, like, 
she was kind of a, a just kind of had a, a darker affect as a 10-year-old. And one day her parents told her about sex. And they told her how it works and when and where it was for. And she took that knowledge and said, cool, thanks. I'd like to explore that now. So I'm going to secretly try to figure out if I can find someone to engage in this with me. And she came to me. I'm kind of stuck. This is the one person I can't get to, 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 to be happy, to feel good, so that I can feel good. And says, hey, let's do this. And I know I shouldn't do this. I don't really have a need to do this. I don't really have a desire to do this. But there's a deeper issue in my life that makes me vulnerable. And so I, I engage as like an eight-year-old can, and luckily that's only to a certain extent. But something took root, and the doors to the sexual side of my life were opened early and with someone else. And I now had secretive sexual shame. I felt bad about this, but I found myself continuing to do this kind of thing. Exploring, curiosity, secretive. And so uh, my family eventually moved back to the United States, but this mode of relating to the world and this little like curiosity that actually did feel good for a little bit, I knew that. And so my fear of being accepted and finding approval didn't go away. There was still that hunger constantly. I never could impress people enough to quiet those fears and insecurities. And I knew that when I didn't feel good, that there was something I could turn to secretly, sexually, shamefully, that for a moment would bring comfort, would bring relief. And so I was a fifth grader. I mean, I have kids that are eight, and I, it hurts my heart to think about Josh at eight engaging in and thinking about and worried about the things that I was. And so I know you know that like this story, this part of our lives, our sexuality, it doesn't just turn on at 20. It's, it's part of being human, and it's with us from the beginning. So I'm a fifth grader who has a girlfriend. I'm 10. And I say, all we have left to do is French kiss, go up your shirt, and have sex. Our teacher catches me passing the note. Our parents are called. They were super cool about it. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, my parents didn't have the tools to walk with this 10-year-old boy and figure out that there's something more going on than just kind of inappropriate behavior and deviance. I was grounded from school for a month. I was embarrassed, and I learned, don't get caught. Don't get caught. Am I, am, am I experiencing healing? Am I understanding what's going on? No, I'm just more afraid and more determined not to get caught, but still stuck. A couple years go by, two, I have a friend over one day, we have the internet, 
computer in our home, and my friend's like, did you know that you can go to certain websites and see nudity and pornography? And I didn't. And, uh, man, that just gave me an avenue that I occasionally had kind of the ability to, to engage with uh, without anyone knowing. And so from that point on, for more than 20 years, multiple times a week, I would find a time alone to look at pornography. And I remember one day I got, my dad kind of found that that was happening. And he, I was about to go on a mission trip. Because the truth is, I had a really soft heart and I loved the Lord. I loved God and I loved people, but I didn't know how to cope with anxiety and insecurity. I didn't know what to do with the stuff in my life that I wish wasn't there. And, but I loved God. I loved his word. I wanted to honor him and serve him, and it was just uncomfortable. And the more that I struggled, the more that I wanted to lean into things that I knew were right and good. So I memorized scripture, and I prayed, and I volunteered, and I served, and I did Awana, and I did, I did all the things, hoping that, like, more of these would kind of somehow push out that other stuff. But it didn't. So I'm going on a mission trip, and my dad says, you have to tell your youth pastor about this before the end of the trip, or else I'm going to tell your mom. I love my dad. He's kind of my hero. My dad was passing the buck in that moment. My dad was hoping that this could be someone else's deal to, like, do with me. Um, so go through this whole trip just terrified. I'm just so scared to, to name what's real in me. I don't know if you've ever had an experience or a season or an issue like that. Just terrified that if someone knew what was true about you, you'd, you'd, you'd be vulnerable and experience rejection and so I wait the whole trip until my youth pastor has driven me home from church after everyone else got picked up and we are in my driveway. And I tell him, and he gives me a book. I like books. You like books? Books are good. Um, I didn't need a book. I didn't need to read three chapters some teenage lingo. Um, I needed healing. I needed to know where in my life I had lies about who God was, how he responded to us in our sin, who I was in him. I needed support. I needed someone who was safe and skilled to walk me from where I was to where God intended me to be, had every ability to get me. But I got a book. I love my youth pastor. He's my hero. I wanted to be just like him. I went to college to study youth ministry. I'm actually not mad at anyone. <laughs> I did pretty good. I had a lot of good things that people around me gave, but I, I didn't have support relative to the level of my need in those years. Went to college, kept acting out. I would 
I would tell my RA, because I know that you should confess your sin, and I would get this accountability group going. But you can ask me all the time. I'm like, as I would now understand, I'm like unable to not do this. It's called addiction. Everything I would naturally think to do to find freedom from this actually brings kind of the, the noose around it even tighter. But I don't know this. I'm an admissions counselor. I look at pornography on my work computer late at one night. I get found out. I'm fired from being an RA, from, from being an admissions counselor. I, uh, I became an RA as in my sophomore year. And as a result of this kind of stuff, I was fired from that. I'm just stuck. I don't know what to do. A couple years go by, I end up serving as a middle school intern because I'm a youth ministry major, and I find a church in Salem, Oregon, where I'm going to do my internship. And I'm 22 years old. I love Jesus. He's called me to ministry. He's gifted me in ways. I've experienced training and education. I served in a youth group and church plant all four years. Spent a summer in China. Like, there's a lot of good things God's doing in my life. This isn't the only thing God cares about. It's not the only thing going on. Um, but it's something that's continuing to go on. At this group, at this church, they happen to have some, like, addiction recovery groups and there's one called a men's integrity group and so i start going to it and it's a, it's like a little bit more sophisticated in its understanding and i go to this for a couple months still scared and i uh and then they hire me from an intern to become the middle school pastor and i i believe a lie and that lie was this now that I'm a pastor, my opportunity for going to a group like this has closed. I will either keep this a secret until I die, or I will overcome this on my own. So, I meet my wife, fall in love, hard. Um, we get married quick, and... We're kind of finding our feet. I told her about this in the past tense, but I didn't tell her about it in the present tense. I lied and I hid. Whatever I thought would, would happen being married didn't. And I'm a newlywed in a home we've bought, and I'm looking at pornography while my wife's in the other room making dinner. This isn't who I want to be. This isn't where I want to be. But I don't know what to do. I kind of speak occasionally at youth retreats. I'm learning about listening and responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I get invited to speak at a middle school retreat for this random church called Fox Island Alliance. I'm living in Salem at the time. The year was 2010. And I go speak at this middle school retreat for Fox and Lights. I'm going to teach middle schoolers how to listen to and respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
And the exercise I would lead the students through was this exercise where you'd, you'd take a journal, and you'd open it up, and you'd ask the Holy Spirit, am I being completely pure, completely loving, completely honest, and completely unselfish? And listen to what the Spirit brings to mind. Now, if you don't know someone who lives with addiction, you might be confused as to how I would be leading middle schoolers to ask these particular questions to the Lord, asking these questions to the Lord regularly myself. But we're just complex folks. And when we're stuck and entrenched and we're hiding, we're going to think about everything else, but we're not going here. And the Lord's actually moving and working in our lives. It's his kindness and mercy that wants to, to make us whole and to bring healing so that we can walk in holiness. But there really is more going on in all of our lives than just our sexuality, broken or healthy as it may be. I'm convinced that the first thing that God wants to talk to any human who will turn their ear to them has nothing to do with their sexuality. It's not the first thing he wants to talk about. It's not the second thing he wants to talk about. It's not the third thing he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the fact that he loves them with an unconditional, unstoppable, unfailing, never-ending love. That he wants to be father and friend and rescuer and redeemer. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you are made on purpose and for purpose. That you'll never be alone. That nothing in heaven and on earth could separate you from his love. That while you were still a sinner, he gave his only begotten son to die in your place that you could be adopted in his family. That's where he'd like to begin. He'd like to spend a lot of time there until you are convinced in your bones that, that he sees you, he loves you, he's come for you. He's kicked the door down, not in anger or in wrath, but in mercy and in kindness to rescue those of us cowering in the corner, scared to death. So I'm at this retreat, and it's Saturday night, and I'm about to go out to give this talk, and I sense the Holy Spirit say to me, Josh, you should ask these questions one more time. And I want you to know I was about to lose hope that this area of my life would ever change. I'd always have a soft heart which means I felt terrible every time I acted out. And that's actually like a gift. And, I, and just, just a month earlier, I'd kind of said to myself, why do I feel so bad about this? Why don't I just accept this will always be a part of my life, get over it, engage in it, and just don't care? Caring's certainly not changing anything, and it's just miserable. And I felt like God, in His mercy, saw that my heart was beginning to harden out of a lack of hope. And so on this night, the Holy Spirit's like, Josh, ask these questions. And so I, I asked these questions. And guys, I don't know how to tell you exactly what happened that night, but it felt like this. I'm in this back room. The students are out here like this. It's about 20 minutes before. And it's, it's probably the most supernatural experience I've ever had. It felt like there was like this Black Hawk helicopter that under the cover of night had crossed enemy lines 
and gone deep, deep, deep into this territory and knew exactly where I was. And this light turns on and says, it's time. If you obey each step I give you, I will lead you out of this briar patch. And the thing I swore I would never tell anyone, I had confidence that this was the Lord and this was true. And I knew I was going to do it. I, I, I swear I got like an infusion of supernatural courage and bravery. I knew I was going to do it. The Lord was saying, it's time. If you obey each step I give you, I'll lead you out of this briar patch. And I'm like, all right. And he said, go home and tell your pastor and your wife. And I'm like, is there like another first step? Um, those are just probably like the two hardest people for me to tell. My job and the person I love who doesn't know I'm a dirtbag. And, uh, but I just knew everything else I've tried never got me where I needed to go. And I didn't know what the whole journey would look like, but I knew that this was the clear first step. And so I had a seven-hour drive. I was wrecked. I woke up the next morning hoping this had been like the worst, weirdest dream in my life where I totally agreed to the Lord to like tell everything to my pastor and wife and get divorced and get fired. And I was like, I am not going to do that. That was so weird last night. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. What is wrong with me? I drive seven hours home. Brett Favre is playing for the Vikings against the Packers. And in that weird wrinkle in the matrix, I tell my wife, I have a confession to make. And I just pull the rug out from under her, from what she thought had been our first five years. And while I wanted to say, no, it wasn't all bad, it wasn't happening all the time, she's like, that's what I believed you saying every day of these first five years. And now I find that's not true, and you want me to believe this like, but now you want me to believe you that's, that it was good a lot of the times and a lot of times that wasn't going on? The whole of it was marred. I said, I need to go tell our lead pastor. And she was like, you can't do that. I said, I have to. She's like, you can't pull the rug out from me ruin our marriage, and get fired the next day. I said, I see where you're coming from. <laughs> but this has been 20 years for me. No, it hadn't. It had only, only been <laughs> like 13. I have to do what the Lord said. I called my pastor. I asked if he could meet with me on his day off. And we meet. And it, he was gracious and knew a little bit about this world and said, Josh, I want you to find a certified sex addiction counselor and I want you to begin treatment. I don't know if that was good news or bad news. It's, I never really wanted a certified sex addiction therapist. Um, but I needed one. And I met this great Christian guy, and I began a journey of recovery. And with my wife's support, I started on, in on this for about nine months. 
Uh, and I kind of like got enough momentum and enough progress that I felt like, I'm doing it. I'm really doing it. All right, this is great. I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're good. I think we're out of the woods. I was going to believe any random three positive things in a row with a little bit of track record and be like, yeah, I think we're done. Turns out I was learning a ton about trauma and family of origin and early childhood stuff and coping mechanisms and lies we believe and the truth about who we are. And there was this whole field about sexual addiction that was needed and transformative. And so, but the only th problem was I stopped early. I stopped early. I wanted to do as little as possible, but as much as necessary to kind of leave this uncomfortable world of, of pornography addiction behind. And I stopped too early. This church, Fox Island Alliance, remember them? That was the middle school retreat I was at. They call me a year and a half later and say, would you like to come candidate to become a lead pastor? And I'm like, no, we just adopted our daughter from Ethiopia. We're super excited to be here. We love this church. We're both on staff. We want to keep working here. But we kind of had this sense like this is what the Lord has. And I was like, oh, man. And so I'm filling out this application, and they're asking all these things. And so far, I've been able to answer this whole application truthfully without bringing up my porn addiction uh, though in the recent rearview mirror. And then they're like, is there anything else at all possible in your whole world ever that might influence your ability to do this job well? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I guess this is probably relevant. And then I was like, well, I don't really want to go to this church anyways. I think I'll just tell them the truth about my story, and they'll probably be like, yeah, pass. And then we'll get to stay, but I'm not disobeying. So I wrote the whole story, and I sent it off to this mixed gender search committee. And, oh, man, they appreciated my honesty <laughs> and said, come. Oh, great. So we moved to town, and uh, I step into this new role as a 29-year-old lead pastor. Oh, Josh, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. I had not dealt with the underlying issues of anxiety and fear and insecurity in my life. And I became a lead pastor, which is like one of the squeeziest squeezes I think that humans can experience. So I've got hundreds of people every week giving me more feedback, positive, neutral, and negative, than I have ever whole heard total in my whole life added up. And I'm not this enough, and I'm not that enough, and I'm too young, and I say dude in my sermons about Jesus, and people are leaving for that, and leaving for this, and the money, and the staff, and the budget, and the, I'm just overwhelmed, and I start acting out again. And now I'm like, oh, now I really can't say anything. I'm a lead pastor. And I already started on this journey once. I can't confess this to my wife again. And this continues for a year. I keep it a secret. I'm acting out. I feel so bad. I feel so terrible. I'm like, I don't know what to do. If I tell, I'll get fired. We'll lose our job. If I don't, I'll stay stuck. I'm already experiencing fear 
about how I'm doing in this job. I really don't want to like volunteer more. And so I, I just chose the, the, f the fear approach. I chose the cowardly approach, and I just continued to hide. I had always felt like the addiction had, had kind of stayed at this level, and it hadn't, like, it hadn't uh, grown into other things. But I found myself being tempted with things I had never been tempted before. And it was spooking me. I found it harder and harder to not do things I didn't want to do. One day I get a phone call that a previous pastor of this group I was a part of had had a sexual moral failure at age 63 and was out of the ministry. And I needed to call people in my church and tell them. And I just, I was like, I'm done. I can't do this. You're telling me as a 33-year-old that I can do everything I can for the next 30 years. And let's say that I make it fine. No one knows. It doesn't come out. That at 63, I'm still going to be struggling with this and could take everything I've built and everything the Lord's done, and it could just be destroyed. I don't want to do that. One of our missionaries that our church here supports came home and said, I'm going to open up a counseling practice. I'm in the process of becoming a certified sex addiction therapist. You are? So I remember the day I walked into him, his office, and just broke and bawled my eyes out and said that dreaded four-letter word, such a bad word, help. And, uh, Guys, that was five years ago. That was five years ago. He said, Josh, I want you to join a group. You can't find freedom without a group. This individual therapy is great. We're figuring out what's going on underneath the waterline of your life. That's great, but you need a group. I don't want to go to a group. I don't want to. Like anyone can... <laughs> Go to our church and see me. I can't go to a group for sex addicts in town. <laughs> this is bad for business. He's like, do you want to be well? So I remember the person that I went to this group. I said to my wife, I'm going to the group for losers. <laughs> and she was like, you're not a loser. And I walked into what has become my favorite place on earth. I have never experienced a group setting like this one. I'm missing it tonight. I still go, it's my favorite. It's like the long lost vision of what Jesus intended the church to be. And my group is mostly full of Christians who say to me and to each other, I would never tell my pastor. I hear the way he talks about sexual sin. I will never tell my small group. I've been in a small group for 10 years. I'll never tell them. I've had 14 affairs. 
here's my story. I understand it all. They're doing great. They measure their sobriety in years. Marriages are restored. Hard things, hard things, crazy stories. I'd never tell my group, oh, man, something's wrong. So I started experiencing healing and finding recovery, and this is life-changing. This is so good. And here I am at church preaching week after week, and I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to start preaching out of your weakness and vulnerability. And I'm like, uh, no, let's just get well over here. No one needs to know about that, and then I'll just keep doing this thing from up front. And I felt the Spirit say, that's what everyone else is doing too. Taking this part over here and kind of dealing with it privately or secretly or not at all, and then coming to church and like leading with their strengths. And it's not working for us. But Josh, the only difference is they're not in any position to do anything about it, but you are. And so as I started to, like, peak and leak, that I wrestle with anxiety. People would start to respond and come up after and say, I've never heard a pastor say that before. I had this, like, big six-foot-six, 300-pound six, dude that I would think would never struggle with that. Give me a hug and just break down in tears and say, I don't know anywhere where I can talk about this. Then one day there was this guy in my group, my group, and uh, he said, you'll never know how much your presence at this group means to me. And I was like, thanks, man. And he kind of had this like, no, you'll never know how much your presence here means to me. And I'm really glad you're here too. I love this group. I'm glad, yeah. And one day, like two years later, he was like, you know how I always tell you, you'll never know how much it means to me that you're here. I was like, yeah. He's like, I want to tell you a story. I've had serial affairs. And one day, this guy's a doctor. Most of the guys are professional veterinarians, doctors, business owners. Successful in many ways, but brokenness nonetheless. And he said, this came out, and my wife was going to leave me. And I learned that there was this therapist of this certain stripe. And I learned that there was a group. And I started coming to the group. And I said, babe, like, there's, like, this makes sense. And I can find healing. And we can, like, restore our relationship. And she said, this is all a crock for just dirtbags to have an excuse and continue being dirtbags. You'll never change. These people never do. And she was deciding whether or not she was going to stay and give this multi-year journey that they needed to go on a chance. And one day she came to pick them up after group. And who did she see walking out of that group with him but me? And she recognized me. She'd been to our church before. And she said, if he's here, this is a real thing. I'll give this a chance. I've never seen anyone do their work in this group as fast or as well as this guy. 
this guy ended up giving his life to the Lord. And I just saw like, man, the last place in the world <laughs> I wanted someone to see me has become the safest and most transformational space I've ever experienced. I named my kids <laughs> Freedom and Victory to give glory to God for what he's done. And I had the option to kind of just like keep the story to myself, like get well, get back on the road. But this story with this guy and his wife said something that I had heard the Lord whisper in my heart. All these years when I hadn't wanted to say anything, I said like this is disqualifying. And guys, I have to be honest and say, if I had ever acted out with someone else, I do believe that there would have been a season in which I would needed to have stepped back. But even our regional denominational leadership had said, because this is a very serious thing, and we want to help you get well, Josh, and we're going to pay half of the therapy bill for you to get well. Half of the bill. And because this has been limited to pornography and hasn't engaged other people, we're going to allow you to stay in your role so long as you stay in this process. But I had said to myself, this is disqualifying God. That's why I can't say anything. And I sensed God say, this is only disqualifying if you walk in darkness. This is uniquely qualifying if you will walk in the light for what I have for you. And so I, I just saw that there was an opportunity if I would integrate the wonderful healing God was doing in my life privately with my public role in life, that maybe our church could have a chance to have a culture where people were okay to name what was really going on in their life. That you'd meet someone broken and struggling, maybe even in this particular area or any other one, and be like, cool, there's a great church for you. Not like cool, but like, you should, you should check this out. And so a year and a half ago, I shared my story uh, with my wife's blessing, which was a scary, brave thing for her and I to do. And, uh, but we had met some people that you're going to hear from tonight who, who have walked this journey as well. And it was their encouragement and others that had us to that place, again, where a story I didn't want anyone to know is one I'm thrilled to share any chance I get. So here's what I want to say to you guys. I'm this, we're going to have this panel come up, but uh, I try to think if what I would be thinking right now or feeling right now or doing right now if I were you as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old. We know more about this than we used to know. Today there are safe and skilled people understandings for men and women in this area. This is your 